0: Now, again, don't think I need to repeat the introduction to the introduction as to why this particular, really, it's more of a lecture than it is a sermon, though it is a development of 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. The minister and his study, the place of reading in pastoral ministry, and we could as well retitle this, at least to some degree, um, the Christian. And to study the place of reading in Christian experience. Because I think there's a, there's a real crossover here. And the text that I developed in this circular letter was 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. And There Paul writes, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus bring when thou comest. And the books especially the parchments. As the Apostle Paul writes the second epistle to Timothy, he does so from the confines of a Roman prison awaiting trial. These are some of the last words, or at least some of the last that are inspired, that are included in the canon of Scripture from the Apostle Paul. The time of departure is at hand, chapter 4 and verse 6. His grace-filled life and productive ministerial career are coming to an end. In this context, the mighty apostle concludes that he has three requests, three needs. Companionship, a cloak, and reading material, the books and the parchments. The first two are obvious and almost intuitive, Paul has been systematically abandoned by a number of former friends and ministerial associates, and you find a list of some of them there. Others pursue ministry in far flung regions of the Roman Empire, and there are references to them as well. He is, for the most part, alone. Only Luke is with him and feels isolated. Good friends would be an encouragement. So he asked that Timothy, his son in the faith, and Mark, now useful once again for ministry, come to him. Winter approaches and those prisons weren't heated. Verse 21, doesn't say they weren't heated there, but they weren't heated and winter's approaching. Hence the need for a warm coat to ward off the winter chill. But what about the books and the parchments? Are they necessary as Paul approaches his end. Besides, Paul has been the recipient of special revelation. So much of the New Testament is the permanent record of God's new covenant speech to his people mediated through this servant of God. How important are the books and the parchments to Paul? Well, he must have them, even in prison at the end of his days. Even an apostle wants books to read. If such a leading light in the early church, the apostle to the Gentiles, requires books to read, what about those lesser lights of today? Ordinary gospel ministers in our churches and ordinary Christians. How can they do without them? Well, Paul's remark in verse 13 appears almost trivial and out of place in that book which records the splendor of our salvation, it must be kept in mind that this too is the word of God given for our instruction and obedience. Whatever the books and parchments were, they were precious to Paul, as well as indispensable to his present circumstances. Paul is lonely, aware of the church's enemy, considers his own mortality, and sends for books. So I have a series of questions that I want to raise and then answer them. First of all, why should ministers read? Or just as well, why should you read? At some level, this reference is not surprising. Christians have always been known as people of the book. The scriptures are central to the life of the Christian Christian. And even those Christians who are non-readers by nature who might ordinarily find reading a chore love the Bible and have a deep and abiding interest in its contents. In addition, ministers must read because it is central to their calling. Even a casual reading of the pastoral epistles will reveal that the minister's primary responsibility in the church is that of teacher as a sample we discover he must be apt to teach, put brethren in mind of certain things, give heed to the public reading of the word, to exhortation and to teaching, to labor in the word, and teach and exhort. And I have a series of texts, and I just quoted a particular text, second Timothy, or First Timothy 3, 2, 4 six and 13 and 16, chapter 5:17 and six verse two. Likewise Paul maintains the importance of preachers and teachers of the word in Second Timothy, chapter one, 11, 13, 2, chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 2, 14, 15, 24, 25, and chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 5. You can see it's it's almost an embarrassment of, of riches. The same may be found in Titus, especially chapter 2, verses 1 and 15. At some point, the obvious suggests itself. If ministers are teachers, how can they teach unless they have something to teach? A teacher must first be a learner. Our confession, the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, picks up this note in chapter 26 and verse 5. In the execution of this power... Wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of the word by his spirit, those that are given unto him by his father, 26.10. And ministry of the word is a technical term, it has to do with preaching. The work of pastors being constantly to attend to the service of Christ in his churches in the ministry of the word and prayer, watching for their souls as they must give an account. Finally, in 2611, although it is incumbent on the bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching the word by way of office, and then it goes on to speak of what in our world are called gifted brothers. Clear these scriptures and the confession teach the same thing. Ministers are principally and primarily preachers and teachers. That is their calling, and that is their work. The minister is a specialist, not a generalist. Since teachers need something to teach, they need to be lifelong students, continuous readers of the book and books. Almost universally in Reformed circles since the day of the Protestant Reformation, Pastors of local churches have been referred to as ministers of the word, or even more specifically in the confessions of the word and sacrament. God was at the center of belief. His appointed means the center of church life. The minister, though no more a priest than any other member of the body of Christ, nevertheless had a special God-appointed responsibility to announce the terms of salvation and to reassure his people of the same by means of water, wine, and bread. In past generations or two, a subtle shift has taken place, sometimes even in the Reformed world. Pastors are no longer ministers of the word, but managers of people or programs in the church. Management has overtaken ministry. The God-appointed cleric has become either a coach or a clerk. People and programs have overtaken proclamation, so there is little time left or need to read books except for those on therapy and sociology on the one hand or management techniques techniques on the other. The family room and the boardroom have replaced the study. John Stott, in a book that he wrote years ago, which is really very fine, Between Two Worlds, The Art of Preaching in the 20th Century, If today's pastors were to take seriously the New Testament on the priority of preaching and teaching, not only would they find it extremely fulfilling themselves, but also it would undoubtedly have a very wholesome effect on the church. Instead, tragic to relate, many are essentially administrators whose symbols of ministry are the office rather than the study and the telephone rather than the Bible. Now that needs to be updated. You can see how long ago that was. Now it's computers and and uh, cell phones and all of the rest. Though Stott's comments are dated, we would add, well, okay, we would add what I just said, modern technology. Whatever necessary and legitimate place there may be for management and administration, should not someone else do it? If so, this may require a radical restructuring of our schedules. It is not people persons or paper pushers we want but God-saturated persons able to teach the whole counsel of God. As the 17th century Dutch theologian Hermann Witsius said, no one teaches well unless he has first learned well. What should ministers read? Our text is is not altogether clear, clear as to the precise nature of the books and the parchments. Speculation runs high in the commentaries, and I'll not go through all of that. But it seems natural, or more natural, however, to adopt the view that what Paul requires are those books essential and and central to his calling as a Christian and an apostle. He asks for the parchments, the scriptures, especially them. Then he wants books. These may have been secular books, copies of pagan authors he knew so well and are cited in the New Testament and referenced in his public ministry, or perhaps those books that point to Christ, either his own epistles or early accounts of the life of Christ that we don't have. In any case, the books were scrolls he found profitable in his life and work. From this we learn, and here are a number of things. First, read the Bible. And that's addressed to you, not just to ministers. Read the Bible. There's no substitute. Read it first, regularly, and repeatedly. Read it again and again for the good of your own soul as well as for the benefit of the people you serve, and in your case, your families. Paul wanted the parchments, especially the parchments. Stott writes, the higher our view of the Bible the more painstaking and conscientious our study should be. James Stalker, who was 19th century, if I remember correctly, 19th century uh, Scottish um, uh, writer, um, excellent materials on the life of Christ, for example, he says, here is one of the primary qualifications of the ministry here, excuse me, hence one of the primary qualifications of the ministry is an intimate familiarity with the scriptures. To this end, a large portion of the study required of you at college is directed, and subsequent habits of ministerial life have to be formed with the same object in view. A large portion of our work is the searching of the scriptures, and a preacher of the highest order will always be a man mighty in the scriptures. And the book that's taken from a book he wrote, The Preacher and His Models. Samuel Miller of Princeton in the 19th century said, he is then to be ready on all occasions to explain the scriptures. This is his first and chief work. This is not merely to state and support the mere simple and elementary doctrines of the gospel, but also to elucidate what, uh, with clearness the various parts of the sacred volume, whether doctrinal, historical, typical, prophetic, or practical. He is to be ready to rectify erroneous translations of sacred scripture, to reconcile seeming contradictions, to clear up real obscurities, to illustrate the force and beauty of allusions to ancient customs and manners, and in general, to explain the word of God as one who made the object, as one who... Uh, has made it the object of his deep and successful study. And that's in a book entitled An Able and Faithful Ministry. So read the Bible. Secondly, read the basic books. Through the centuries, the Christian church has insisted upon an educated ministry. A robust biblical and theological education is as ne- is necessary, not a luxury. A necessity, not a luxury. And we have IRBS, and there's a reference here to that. Ideal as this is, not every minister has the benefit of significant formal training, but all can read. Paul had read the works of secular philosophers and historians. He could interact with ideas. His education gave him a trained mind with the necessary critical thinking skills that accompany such training. He learned how to be precise and to make clear distinction. One pastor... and. I referenced this man who was the first pastor I served with um, as an assistant. I was his assistant. And I speak of him, his education, um, excuse me, he, there we go. One pastor, without the benefit of formal training, arriving home shortly after the end of World War II, accepted a call to a small rural church and he felt immediately overwhelmed with all he did not know about the world of ideas and the word of God. For the next dozen years, literally, this is, this is accurate, for the next dozen years, he spent nine hours a day in his study, six days a week, just reading, hoping to catch up. Then, in addition, this in addition to other pastoral responsibilities, including preparing Three sermons a week. For further reflection on the above, the reader may want to consult several articles in volume one of selected shorter writings of Benjamin Warfield, considering the following from Witsius. He who would be, this is a great quotation, he who would be a true theologian and worthy of that honorable appellation must lay the foundation of his studies in the lower school of nature and from every quarter of the universe, from the wonders of divine providence, from the monuments of ancient as well as modern history, from the shrines of the arts, from the beauties of various tongues, bring together and store up in his memory, as in a treasury of the most sacred kind, those things which, when afterwards advanced to a higher school, he may lay as a foundation for a nobler superstructure superstructure so first of all read the bible Then, secondly read the basic books and third read the best books and uh, you know for years this lecture would have been um, inappropriate in Cuba because they didn't have any books so how can I tell them to read books when they're just not available but now we're publishing them and we have scores of titles, and we—they're so cheap. They're—they're they're just less than a dollar for these paperbacks, you know, less than a dollar in our money. Um, and we give them away at every one of these conferences. It pays to come to the conference because it doesn't cost you anything, and you get a free book. So even if you don't believe what we're teaching, come and get a free book. But read the best books, and so I emphasize that, you know, off the cuff, and said, read the best books. You can't read everything. You just can't read everything. And and you can't even read all of the things
1: that you really like to
0: read that we buy and are in our libraries. We reference them in different ways. But I say here, you will not have time to read everything, so be selective. For the most part, read the books. Read the one book from which all others appear to draw their ideas. For example, I say, read Calvin. Because almost everybody cites him, either actually, or you find it if you read Calvin, um, you, you can see the influence of Calvin, Matthew, Henry, the same way. Read the great books first, the primary sources. Begin with old books and classics. Some of you will say amen in your hearts to that, I think. Read the old books and the classics. Those that come highly commended and have stood the test of time read carefully new ones which may be full of novelty and speculation and when the novelty wears off will soon be forgotten i'm old enough to have seen certain books come come along and everyone read them it's absolutely wonderful and now they're in the dustbin you know nobody cites them nobody reads them uh, and uh, the ideas are obsolete the remedy f- for our age is not innovation but spiritual renovation one of my friends once said newest is not always truest and then I remember this actually this morning I hadn't thought of it before but C.S. Lewis once wrote it is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one until you have read an old one in between. That's good advice. How should ministers read? First, he must read regularly, and so must you, or should you. Reading must become a habit. The best teachers in the world are those who never stop learning. Calvin comments on Deuteronomy 5, none will ever be a good minister of the word unless he is first of all a scholar, Spurgeon likewise remarked, he who has ceased to learn has ceased to teach. He who no longer sows in the study will no more reap in the pulpit. The minister must never stop learning. Reading must be a priority or it will never get done. And I would say that to you as laymen in the church. Reading must be a priority. If it's not a priority, you won't do it. There'll always be something else that will take its place. I'm sure you agree with me. There's always something to be done. Reading must be a priority or will never be done. I just said that. The pastor must determine to read every day, even if he is bivocational. Let the cry be no day without its line. He must determine to win the battle over the tyranny of the urgent. He must decide when he is available and when he is not, apart from emergencies. Some things won't get done if you read, get used to it. James Boyce wrote, the ministry should not only be an educated ministry, it should be educable and self-educating. If it is, the preacher will continue to be fresh, alive, and interesting. If it is not, his material will soon run out and the sermons will become repetitious and boring. So read regularly. Second, he must read systematically. He must read methodically through the biblical and theological disciplines. He must not be a man of one thing, but balanced, avoiding every hobby horse. One writer reported that the Scottish minister, William Cunningham, gave his students a drilling in theological method and a sense of theological proportion. Have a system and work the system. Have a plan and work the uh, the plan. The books you purchase... Are not, for de, uh, are not for decoration, but for edification. Read them. Third, he must read widely. Read the books and the parchments. And J.C. Ryle goes on to speak of, um, uh, of, of reading books as well as the parchment. And he says, lastly, in this quotation, I have, he that looks for something to learn will always be able to learn something. Fourth, he must read wisely. Learn to read selectively. Be wary of wasting your time with the glut of information today, especially from the Internet. Now, everybody in Cuba has, in fact, I find that in third world countries, more people have cell phones than even people do here. And most people have them here, including young people. But everyone in a third world country has a cell phone. And everybody's on Facebook and everybody is wasting their time on Facebook. Now there's a place for it, Um, of course. And it's a way for them uh, to connect um, with family in Miami or with people on the other side of the country. But I I suggested that they needed to read and to pay attention uh, to things like Facebook. How many hours are wasted um, you know, you can sit down at your phone, and the next thing you know, it three hours have gone by, or two hours, or whatever. And uh, uh, and much of it on the internet and blogs, um, sadly, um, is just incorrect, and it can't be verified as to author or to truthfulness. So read the books, because everyone is a writer, everyone has a blog, and everyone claims to be an authority. Some books are the best books on the subject, some books are just good books, and some books are bad books. Not every book is the best book, and many books are dangerous books. Rich, Richard Baxter noted that some are fitter to are fitter, that is more fit, to puzzle than to edify. Determine to read with discretion, be willing and ready to lay aside that book which cannot defend its right to exist. There's plenty to do without wasting time pursuing words without profit. Learn also the art of skimming. Some books beg to be read thoroughly and underlined carefully. Others may be surveyed and archived for future reference. Be familiar with the books that you have in your library. Make some your best friends. Greet others only occasionally. Fifth, he must read devoutly. There is a balance to be sought between doctrine and practice. John Murray asserted that that the Christian's goal was intelligent piety. Neither a mystical pietism nor a dead rationalism is what the scriptures envision. Read with purpose. Read and meditate. Read for the good of your soul. Read and pray. Be mastered by what you read. Warfield claimed that the extremes of pietism and rationalism have ever hunted in couples and dragged down their quarry together. He also claimed that knowledge without zeal is useless. Zeal without knowledge is worse than useless. It's positively destructive. What we need in our pulpits are scholar saints become preachers, said Warfield. Or in the words of Witsius once again, In order that he may be thus instructed, instructed, let him heartily renounce his own wisdom. Let him become a fool that he may be wise. In studying, let him not only read, but pray. Let him commune not with man alone, but with God in prayer, with himself in meditation. Now, when I wrote this, and this sounds almost as if I might be asking for something, and I'm not, but this is a part of the part of the paper and I think that it um, has bearing in many places and I certainly wouldn't suggest that our church in any way has been remiss. But who can help ministers in their reading? And this goes back to my first uh, church where um, I was compelled to be an administrator as the senior pastor had become and there was very little time for reading. So some of this comes out of my own early experience. And I said, this circular letter is designed to be read by church members as well as by her officers. And So here's a particular word for them as they think of their pastors and reading. First, to give him the respect his office deserves. Your minister is a gift from Christ given to you in the church for the benefit of the body. John Owen is helpful as he writes, There is a greater glory in giving a minister to a poor congregation than there is in the installment and enthronement of all popes and cardinals and metropolitans that ever were in the world. Let their glory be what it will. Christ is upon his theater of glory in the communication of this office and these officers. Owen mentions three things that are required in everyone who may be esteemed to be a gift given by Christ to the church. An imitation of him, a representation of him, and a zeal for him. There is a representation of Christ in all his offices. Owen says, to represent Christ in his prophetic office, he was the great teacher of the church and the principal work of ministers is to preach the word in season and out of season, by all means to carry on the church and the knowledge of God and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I will give them pastors that shall feed them with knowledge and understanding. Those who take upon themselves to be pastors and neglect this work of feeding the flock may at as a cheap, and at as, as a cheaper rate and with equal modesty renounce Jesus Christ. Second, give him your attention. Remember that all reading, preparing, and preaching is not just for him but for you. In a sermon entitled The Character of a True Evangelical Pastor, the Puritan John Flavel observed, Your barrenness and unpersuadableness, your division and instability cost us more than all all other pains in our studies and pulpits. How easily and sweetly would the plow go, would you but set forth your hands of prayer and obedience to assist us in that work. The stewards of Christ provide choice dishes for you, even feast of fat things full of marrow and serve it unto your souls upon the knee of prayer in due season. Have a care of despising it, if at any time the dishes be not garnished as you expect with curious figures and flowers of rhetoric. The Lord give you hungry appetites, sound digestions, and thriving souls. Then ye be our crown of rejoicing, and we yours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ to the word of whose grace I commend you all, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among them that are sanctified. Third, give him the gift of time. That was a real problem in my first pastorate. Let him do his work. And you do, by the way. But let him do his work by not creating another agenda for him. Take some responsibility for your own spiritual upkeep On the basis, of course, of your own reading and of what you hear from the pulpit. Love the brethren by not demanding too much of your pastor. He will be there when you need him. Fourth, give him adequate compensation so that he can buy books. Of course, that depends on the size of the church and so forth. How can a man do his work without his tools? A tradesman requires tools. The tools of a minister, a minister's trade are books. Spurgeon wrote, Up to the highest measure of their ability, they should furnish their minister not only with food, which is needful to sustain the life of his body, but with mental nutriment, so that his soul shall not be starved. A good library should be looked upon as an indispensable part of church furniture And the deacons whose business it is to serve tables will be wise if, without neglecting the table of the Lord or of the poor, without diminishing the supplies of the minister's dinner table, they give an eye to his study table and keep it supplied with new works and standard books in fair abundance. It would be money well laid out and would be productive far beyond expectation. Parsimony with a minister is false economy. Fifth, give him time off. Consider giving him a sabbatical for study. This has been a traditional practice in many churches, especially Presbyterian churches, and it certainly is something that takes place in the academic concept. The term sabbatical originally referred to the provision made concerning the land of Israel. Leviticus 25 requires a Sabbath rest for the land every seventh year. After six years of sowing and harvesting, the land lay fallow for one year. The significance of rest for the land was more than an interest in soil chemistry. It acknowledged that the earth in its fullness belonged to the Lord. God was benefactor, and he would care for his people. Uh, and again, it says it, I say it appears primarily in academic circles, but it also may well apply to the ministry and the church. 1,500 years after Paul wrote 2 Timothy, William Tyndale, likewise in prison for his faith, requested from the governor of the castle where he was ensconced a cloak, a woolen shirt, a warmer cap, but also his Hebrew Bible, grammar, and vocabulary. Both men saw they had temporal and spiritual needs both recognize the importance of books. Ministerial faithfulness rests upon the principle of stewardship. Ministers, in a special sense, are the chief stewards of Christ's house, who must give His household food in due season. Matthew twenty four forty five to forty seven. Flavel put it this way: Believe it, sirs, all our reading, studying, and preaching is but trifling hypocrisy till the things read, studied and preached be felt in some degree upon our own hearts. We tell our people, the Lord help us to tell the same to our own hearts, that there are similar as well as that there are similar as well as saving excuse me, that, but that those things are similar, as well as saving works of the Spirit, by which there, and why not our own souls, may be lost? The labors of the ministry will exhaust the very marrow from your bones, hasten old age and death. They are fitly compared to the toil of men in harvest, to the labors of a woman in travail and the agonies of soldiers in the extremity of battle. We must watch while others sleep. I'm done except for this. Thirty-five years ago, the writer, that would be me, purchased a plaque with an inscription containing Martin Luther's, it's called a sacristy prayer, which means his study prayer. And it's hung in my study since about 1974, wherever I've been. It's hung there ever since as a moving reminder of the minister's calling may it prompt each one who is a minister of the word of God to be a faithful student and steward of the word. And here's the prayer. Lord God, thou hast made me a pastor and teacher in the church. Thou seest how unfit I am to administer rightly this great and responsible office. And had I been without thy aid and counsel, I, surely, I would surely have ruined it long ago. Therefore do I invoke thee, how gladly do I desire to yield and consecrate my heart, consecrate my heart and mouth to this ministry. I desire to teach the congregation. I too desire ever to learn and to keep thy word my constant companion and to meditate thereupon earnestly. Use me as thy instrument in thy service. Only do not thou forsake me, for if I am left to myself. I will certainly bring it all to destruction. Amen. When I finished this lecture in the last place, I had a whole bunch of pastors come up and say to me, can I take a photo of that prayer of Luther's? And I said, of course. It's a great prayer. And I don't know about the, I often say that I don't know if I can preach or not but I know how to quote. Those are great quotations. And so hopefully it gives you what you already know, sort of a rehearsal of what we're doing and what this is all about and what my life has been spent doing as well as um, Stefan's.